Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. If God is so good and powerful, why is there so much evil in our world? Although you might retort, well, Sean, that's because humanity fell into sin and we're all suffering the consequences. Such an answer, however, merely pushes the question back one step, since God is still the one who determined just how fallen our world would become once sin entered the picture. Why doesn't he allow more suffering or less? What are his aims in having the world be how it actually is? Why doesn't he intervene more to stop harm, for example? Brandon Duke has wrestled with this question extensively, and today he'll provide a lay of the land to help you think through this issue. He breaks up the problem into three categories. One, human evil. Two, natural suffering. And three, God's hiddenness. Today he'll cover a number of presuppositions about God's knowledge that play into how we approach evil, as well as what God's objectives are that he ultimately will bring to pass. Then we'll tackle the first of these three categories, human evil, and offer some solutions. Here now is Podcast 362, Why God Allows Suffering, Part 1 with Brandon Duke. Welcome, Brandon Duke. I'm so glad to have you today on the podcast. Man, Sean, thank you for having me. I've been a fan of Restitutio for a long time, and uh, I'm tickled pink to be here. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Well, uh, share with us a little bit of your backstory and why this topic is important to you, the whole subject of theodicy, evil, suffering, hiddenness. Why do you even care about this? Yeah, so I had a... uh, a really excellent upbringing. I, I've lived a very easy life in many ways compared to most people. But a few years back in 2016, my dad passed away suddenly. And um, my approach to most things in life that become a struggle is to overstudy it and overthink it. <laughs> so that's what I did. I, I, I started realizing that these were questions that Christian thinkers had, had been uh, working on for a long time. There's an active uh, discussion about these these subjects in, in academia today. I started reading books and listening to podcasts and uh, including some stuff from Restitutio uh, when, I, when I found it on, uh, on Christian defenses uh, for why the world is the way it is. I just started getting, getting really interested in these answers. And what I found, what I found interesting is that the more uh, I could clarify the problem in my head, there also seemed to be clearer solutions. And the more that I could bring all the problems together, uh, the more holistic the solutions became. So hopefully what I can do today is is help people know that they're not alone in asking some of these difficult questions when, you know, a loved one dies or they see something horrible on the news. You know, how could God let this happen? How does how come bad things happen to good people? <laughs> really, why did God make a world like this and why does he govern it the way he does? Hopefully the two situations that this will be helpful to people is is when they're helping others that are grieving. Mm-hmm. Or when they're running into, you know, atheist criticism of of God and in sort of an apologetic uh, situation. So hopefully my banging my head on this will potentially save some other people or at least get them a head start so that they can uh, answer the question for themselves, too. Yeah, I, I honestly believe this is just such a huge question that so many people have. And I, I, I fear that many Christians are just afraid to allow this question to bubble up in their own hearts into a coherent thought. You know, they just tamp it down. They're like, oh, I, doubt is bad. I can't 
go there. I don't want to lose my faith and all this. And, you know, my response to them is like, look, if your faith is held together by duct tape and a prayer, like, what good is it? <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just so fragile and wimpy. I, I would say you need to take advantage of doubt. Doubt should be your servant uh, to find truth and, and discard error. And this area is no different. I'm the kind of guy, and I know some people disagree with me on this. I had a, a good fight with a Christian friend some years ago on this uh, very topic, and he, he just he was so appalled that I said this. But I'm the kind of guy that, look, if there's no God, I don't want to believe in him. And, yeah. you know, I, I'm not into fairy tales and myths and legends and stuff that makes me feel better, but, th- th- but that's not true. I'm, I just have no use for that. If there isn't a God, then, all right, now that really affects how I think and how I live, and I want to not be deluded. <laughs> it, absolutely, it matters too much, doesn't it? It's too important to be right about this, to hold true beliefs and not hold false beliefs, because you're right, it, it, it impacts every decision you make in your whole life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, on atheism, my life is fairly useless, yep. being a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> Not entirely useless, I wouldn't think, but fairly uh, misguided. But uh, why is this important? Well, this question that you are and have been wrestling with for, for so many years, Brandon, is really the number one defeater for Christianity, for theism, uh, for a doctrine that says God is good, uh, says that God is present or cares, as opposed to deism. And so this is a question that really every Christian needs to be able to have some thoughts about and something worked out in their head because it is going to come up. And, it's, and you don't even have to wait for your atheist friends to bring it up, do you? Like no, you said, you know, it'll, it'll happen at the funeral. Yep. And you're like, well, what the heck is this? Or, you know, with COVID right now, you, you'll see these yep. outlier cases where like some healthy 30-year-old or 22-year-old dies and you're like, but they didn't have comorbidities and they yep. were a good person. And you're like, what the heck? So I think this is really, really a, a key important issue to talk about, to think about, to not be afraid of. And I'm really excited to hear your research on this, at least as it stands right now. So you have things kind of divided out into three major categories. I wonder if you could just address those briefly. Tell us what's the difference between evil, suffering, and hiddenness. You know, then we can proceed from there. Yeah, it sounds great. Yeah, I, I think we can fairly divide these questions that we're asking, the, the how could God let this happen um, that we see on the news or at the funeral or in our own lives. We can divide them up into, into three kind of challenges to God's existence. The first would be evil. Evil is a... Uh, in some sense is the easiest of the three, which may sound counterintuitive, but, but as far as, as people that have responded to it, um, it's the one that the Christians usually feel the surest footing on. And this is the idea that people choose to do horrible things, murder, a war, any kind of abuse that you can think of executed by agents. That's evil. And it's worth distinguishing that from say, uh, suffering, which we can define better later, but you know, suffering is the kind of thing that happens naturally. Now, evil can bring suffer, suffering, certainly. But usually when we talk about the problem of evil, we're talking about what, what we do to each other. With evil, there's really two problems that, that we define. There's sort of the, the formal problem that the philosophers deal with, which is, is there a logical contradiction between our definition of God and the world that we see around us? So 
for most of us, we think God is all good and all powerful and all knowing. And that trifecta, when you look at a world where something horrible happens, some rapist murderer in someone's life horribly, it seems like God knows about it. God doesn't want to see that happen to that, that innocent person. And he has the power to stop it. So how do we explain the fact that he doesn't, that, you know, these, these things do occur, you know, however much you think God intervenes, there are certain times where he doesn't, otherwise there would never be a murder or a, or a rape. So that's the logical problem. The intuitive, or sometimes they'll call it the probabilistic problem mm-hmm. is this question of how much evil is there? You know, maybe there's some good reasons that God has for letting some evil happen, but man, there's just an awful lot. I mean, tens of millions of people die during the 20th century and, you know, 200,000 Americans and millions of human beings have died in the last year from a virus. There's just an awful lot. We'll get into solutions for that later, but that's, that's the problem of evil. It's, it's the, the, what we do to each other that God allows and seems like maybe he should intervene. So you wouldn't include disease, like natural disease and stuff like that in this category? That's That would be suffering? I, that's how I break it up. Okay. Sometimes they'll call it natural evil instead of suffering. But yeah, I think it's better to separate the two, to have have you have evil that's done by agents and suffering that's caused by the by the design of the universe. And so maybe that's the second thing to define. So when we talk about suffering, we're thinking about things like you said, viruses, earthquakes, floods, disease, aging, just the, the, the way that the world harms people. What about grief? Is that sure. suffering? Absolutely. Absolutely. Emotional suffering? Absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's all these different ways that, that we hurt. You know, again, there's sort of a logical problem to this that the philosophers will tackle, which is to take those three omnis that, you know, God's all-powerful, all-good, and all-knowing, and say, well, man, it seems like he could have done a different or better job in putting together the world that we have where it doesn't have so much. And we'll get into some solutions for that. But then there's also sort of an intuitive and emotional problem where we just say, okay, fine. Maybe there's good reason to have trees fall on people, but how come, how come me or why my son or daughter? And it's, it's very personal. And it feels like for theistic personalists like us that think God is a person in relationship with us, it seems like a betrayal to people that there's this expectation of, God being a protector for us. And when bad things happen, um, even if they're just natural, I stub my toe or I have a heart attack or a tree falls on me or I, whatever the misfortune may be, our instinct is that there's, some, there's something wrong there. We'll, we'll tackle those too. And then, yeah, let's move on to hiddenness. Yeah. So hiddenness, again, I would divide into sort of two problems. The first is a is a formal problem from a philosopher named J.L. Schellenberg, who argues that if you could find even one instance of a person who has, who doesn't believe in God, who's a non-believer and is non-culpable, it's not their fault. They've done everything that they should to try to believe in God. They, they might even want to, but they find themselves in a condition of unbelief that that's proof that God doesn't exist. He, he, he goes so far as to say it's a logical proof that God doesn't exist. And he bases this on the idea that God would want people to believe him. He would want relationship with his created beings as, uh, as Bible believers, you know, we, we think we're God's children. And so for God to not act again, using some of these attributes that we would say he has this power and this wisdom and this goodness, 
how could he possibly leave someone in a state of of disbelief so all you need is one atheist that's a sincere atheist you know that that's an example of non-resistant non-culpable non-belief then he says that's proof um that there isn't such a god sounds like that assumes that god has an obligation to reveal himself clearly to everyone yeah certainly we can get into assumption there yeah, absolutely. It's interesting to listen to Christians respond to that because we do have lots of different ways to respond. But I would start by just saying to have people believe in God may not be God's objective, um, right? They, he could have objectives beyond just that. That's trivially, trivially <laughs> achievable for God to have us believe that he exists. He might want us to do or believe something beyond that. So I mean, absolutely, yeah. I think we have good responses. Yeah. I think the hiddenness one is absolutely huge uh, for Christians. I remember talking to one of my sons about this uh, some time ago, and he was just like, well, why don't you get everything you pray for? Sure. You prayed for this to happen, and it didn't happen, so why should I believe in God? Absolutely. And I think that's a great question. That's an important question to wrestle with, because if you go, on the one hand, to uh, the mindset that I've heard expressed that, that says, well, prayer doesn't actually do anything. God's already decided what he's going to do, and prayer is just like you aligning yourself with what God's already decided. Or, on the other extreme, you're, you're the problem. If you had faith, God would have to do whatever it is you pray for him to do, and yeah. if you just name it, you can claim it. And, uh, you know, these, these kind of poles, like one where it's like prayer is absolutely useless, and the other is that it's a stick by which I can force God to do my will. Neither of those are, are healthy, and, and neither is the, uh, the total atheist position, given the other sorts of evidence and knowledge we have about God's existence. So the hiddenness does play into that as well, just like the, the Christian experience of God uh, with unanswered prayer in particular. Yeah. And I, I love your, your son's point. You know, why doesn't God show up every morning sitting, waiting for me at the foot of my bed saying, good morning, don't forget to, you know, keep my commandments and I love you and I'll check in with you later. God doesn't work that way with, with us. Um, maybe some people would say that he does, but, but not literally skywriting his name in the stars or, uh, or, or something that, that dramatic. We've got examples in biblical history of that kind of thing. But for most of us, that's not the experience that we have. We have a prayer life and we have a worship life, but a lot of that, a lot of times we would expect or hope to see God active or present in our lives in a way that, that maybe we don't see. That's the, I call that sort of the second, the intuitive or the common sense problem of hiddenness where right. we just like, we'd like to experience God in a stronger way or see him active in a world in the world in a way that we just don't. Yeah. All right, so we've got these three aspects to this issue, and one is evil, one is suffering, one is hiddenness, and on each of them we have the more formal, logical problem, and then as well we have the intuitive, emotional, probabilistic, or, or common sense side of things where most people experience or think about the issue. Let's talk about how you approach this trifecta and look at some of your your thoughts on, you know, what what can we bring into this to flesh out the problem a little more before getting into some solutions here? Absolutely. One of the things that I found in in researching this is that there are there are a lot of perspectives. There are a lot of different answers, and the the different answers that Christians or theists come to are typically driven by other conclusions they've come to, doctrinal positions they hold, 
some presupposition that they're bringing to to the issue. So, for example, you know, ask a Christian, what's God's program? What's his end game? What's what's he at uh, here with this whole creation? And, you know, my preferred answer to that is he's he's soul making. Uh, if you go to Romans five, right, that there's suffering is bringing about hope, and there's ultimately this this good end. Uh, all of this is pointed towards. There have been Christians throughout history that that have held this view that that we're being made into something. This is sort of a a testing ground and. That's something that I hold very strongly, but it's not universal. I mean, there are Christians that think that this is to God's glory. He could make or do this however he pleased. And so he just chooses to, to work the way he does and save who he will and, and not who he will uh, wills. So your ideas about um, God's end game are going to play in. And then your view of God, what God knows is incredibly important. There's a um, let, me, let me pause yes, you on sir. that. Say just a little bit more about soul-making. I, I assume you're probably going to come back to this later because it's a really big part of how you approach the whole problem, but it's kind of a, an ambiguous phrase. What do you yeah. mean by soul-making yeah, as, as an objective of God? As I understand it, the term goes back to a church father named Irenaeus, and the idea is that we are being forged in some way, that that we are agents that sort of start with some kind of clean slate, some kind of starting point, and that through our experiences, God sort of forges and and makes righteous persons out of it. Persons that are, um, in my language, are sort of candidates for citizenship in his kingdom. You know, you kind of, ha- you'd have to ask yourself, what's the point of all of this? Um, obviously, we all die. We're all experiencing these these three things to some degree or other, evil, suffering, and hiddenness. So, so what's God's objective? And and soul making, it's worth mentioning. It's not committed to either body soul dualism or or physicalism. You know, where we're, where we're just a, a physical entity. You could, you could hold either view, and there's still something being forged, and that that's the the end product that God's going for. And we'll get into the, into this more. But if you assume that that's God's objective, then it seems like there's certain conditions that have to be met. That uh, there's to be a certain arena that we're placed in, and certain kinds of, um, of opportunities that we have for that to happen. Um, okay. The idea is it's got to be authentically uh, created. Yeah, so maybe the word development might help mm. out here. Because yeah, when you say soul-making, sure. it, it almost sounds like you're making a soul. Right, right? <laughs> like uh, creating somebody originally or something. Yeah, yeah, but we're talking about development. We're talking Absolutely. about maturity. Yep. And we certainly see that in the garden. In the beginning, you have uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, you know, it's curious that it's not the tree of the knowledge of evil. Right. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, right. which is what maturity is, is knowing to distinguish between good and evil, knowing to choose not to eat the whole bag of candy because then you're going to have a stomach ache. Figuring out how to do things is really in, an important part of human development, right? Yeah, soul making is is really an interesting concept, and we definitely want to come back to that. But uh, what other considerations and presuppositions do we do we sort of bring into this, other than our view of God's end game? Yeah. So the next big thing that I would point to is our view on what God knows and when He knows it. Most Christians are familiar with with Calvin's view of the future and and with uh, Reformed view, where God certainly knows all things, but even beyond that where God in some cases determines all things. Each and every little event in life is God's will in some way or the other. 
versus a more a view that I hold, which is called open theism, that says that there's a fundamental uh, uncertainty that, to the future where our choices and decisions bring about the future that actually comes to exist. And then there's you sort of in between Arminianism where God knows the future, but didn't, didn't determine it. And uh, Molinism where God picks from a series of futures that, and he picks the best one. And uh, your, your position on that is going to dramatically affect the way you look at this problem, because, you know, on an, for example, on an open theist view, you're going to say, well, God has to be pretty careful about his interventions because there's a, there's an element of chaos theory here, right? There's not 100% certainty on how Brandon is going to react when God Mm -hmm. intervenes in his life. And so it really functions more in probability in that case. Right. This is what Brandon did in similar situations, 87% of the time. Sure. So, you know, he's, he's working within that framework rather than I know what I'll have Brandon do. <laughs> which would be more of a deterministic way, yeah. Right, absolutely. So where you fall on that spectrum is going to make a it's going to make a big difference. And um, I would encourage people if if they haven't just read a couple of three or four or five views books, they're very helpful on this subject. And maybe we can put some in the show notes or something. But yeah, that, but this is a this is a really key issue to, to come to grips with and on what you really think is going on because it's going to as much as uh, God's end game, what He's trying to accomplish and what it takes to do that. This affects how He can accomplish that end game. And, and would you agree, Brandon, that the hard deterministic perspective on God's knowledge has a much bigger problem with evil and suffering and hiddenness than? The opposite, which would be a totally open view where God is in time, in the situation with us, not coercing, but yet at the same time guiding to uh, whatever degree. Uh, because yeah. on the hard deterministic view where God basically, like there's, or as R.C. Sproul would say, there's not a single maverick molecule in the universe. <laughs> you know, every little piece of dust is where God wants it to be. That in that case, he's entirely culpable for, you know, every rapist, every child molester, every warlord who causes suffering, gratuitous suffering, right? Yep. Uh, and I, I realize they, they have a, a comeback to that, but I'm just saying from a common sense point of view, the stronger your view is of God's knowledge, the harder the problem of evil and suffering becomes, would you would you say that's pretty much the case? Absolutely, I totally agree with that, and I I agree also with describing it as a spectrum. And the further you go down one end of the spectrum towards God's control, the more of a problem you have here. And like you said, there are plenty of people with with defenses of that. But as when we get into the actual solutions, we'll we'll get into their solutions to the problem of evil uh, from that perspective. And one of the things they have to say is they have to shrug. They have to say. Really, we're not in a good position to know. And so when you see this horrible thing that you're morally outraged by, some innocent person being harmed, you're not in a good position to know that. Basically, you have to ignore your moral intuitions and just punt and say, God God knows alone. And uh, that's a very strange thing. It's, it's sawing, sort of sawing off the limb you're sitting on. If we can't trust our own intuitions about, about this, if those aren't God-given, at least to some degree. Well, I'd say it's um, even worse. I'd say it's even worse because not only are they saying, well, we don't know, but they're also saying that God wanted it yep. to happen. It's not yep. that God allowed it to happen. If, if you're working with a deterministic model, like he determined 
in eternity past that this poor lady was going to get mugged in an alley and that that was going to screw her up the rest of her life, giving her yep. PTSD, making her have a hard time getting a job or whatever effects it has on her children and her grandchildren. Yep. You know, like the, the ripple effects of suffering and evil are, are just massive here. And what yep. we're saying is that, oh, that's all for God's glory. You know, you just kind <clears> of <throat> squeeze yourself together yep. and say, no, it's for his glory. I don't understand how it works. Well, how does he get glory from some, some kid getting raised as a slave in a, you know, to become a sweatshop worker and die young? How, how, how does that glorify God? I, I don't get that. Yeah, right. just go to a NICU. Go to go to, to and see the baby. Well, and you've seen hospital. a lot of this too in your in your day job, yeah. right? With yeah. the yeah. work you've With done nursing in homes. nursing homes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Please, please share go, about that a little. Go see. Look, go go to a, a hospital and walk through the burn ward, or go to the hospital and go and see the babies in the NICU um, that are in, getting intensive intervention and all the tubes and everything going in. And there's an, there's suffering there and there's death of total innocence, and then go to. Uh, you know, go to a, a, an old folks home, go to a retirement home, go to one of these nursing homes where we work and see what happens as people age, as their minds fail and the, the intense confusion and suffering they experience. It's, it's awful. No one of us, if we had the ability to snap our fingers, wouldn't snap them and, and relieve people of the suffering. I mean, we would need massive reason, like overwhelming reason not to. What bothers me so much about the deterministic view is it never really offers that when when the you know the, the Calvinist preacher uh, does the the funeral you know there's there's this three year old child in the casket he has to tell the parents this was God's eternal will for this to happen and so you need to you know humble yourself and accept that this was in some way good man good luck having a relationship and thinking of God as a loving father with that I I do too I have a I have a strong emotional reaction to that that view of God's sovereignty and that view of God's knowledge. And uh, I want to pick on it a little more when we actually get to our solutions and, <laughs> okay. and look at what they say. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, let's, let's keep going. What else do we have here under uh, other considerations? I think another really important thing is for Christians in particular, uh, because we have this account of the garden and we have this received uh, doctrine from Augustine and, and other church fathers about what we're capable of um, as human beings, as far as our ability to do good, to resist sin, you know, depending on your systematic theology, you're again, we're, we're on another, another one of these examples of a spectrum where the further you go towards limiting what humans are capable of, the kind of good that we can do, um, the more difficult this problem becomes because you have to ask, well, why did God will this to be the case, right? Why did God will for Adam and Eve to, to, to fail in the garden and to lead to the kind of world that we see? Why would God create beings that didn't have the ability to obey him and yet constantly demands that they obey him? We come into, I think, all kinds of logical contradictions and problems with that kind of a, a system. And again, they've got defenses for that, but I think intuitively this is a this is a really difficult thing for people to work through. And I think if you go on the spectrum the other way where the more capacity God either gives us from birth by, you know, by the design or the more capacity he gives us through intervening in our lives, the more meaningful our, our choices and our lives become, particularly if we go back to the soul making idea, look, this is an idea, like you said, of process, 
but it's got to be an authentic process. You know, if God could snap his fingers and create a morally perfect person, I, I wouldn't see why he wouldn't do that. But, you know, play that out in your head. God creates you 10 minutes ago, snap, and uh, you discover 10 minutes from then um, that all these memories and this history that you have of choices that you've made, of mistakes you've made that you've repented of, all this history is artificial. How do you go forward from that? I think a lot of people would 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 find that deeply upset upsetting and they, they wouldn't know who they were because this history is this history's fake. Why would I be committed to the things I'm committed to if there's somebody else's? That's not really me. I, I just came into being 10 minutes ago. So I think there's something fundamental to the authentic process of of becoming. Even your idea about time, you know, the philosophers that discuss time, there's there's two positions. There's A theory and B theory. And B theory is that all of time already exists. Imagine it like a big block of ice and you can slice it up. And all the way, the ice goes all the way in the past and all the way in the future and it all exists. Um, and what we just experience is sort of moving through the ice experientially. Mm-hmm. But really, there's no real present. It's all just relative. Versus the A theory, which says each moment really is all that there is. The future is still potentiality and the, the past is gone, just stored up, uh, the information stored up in the present that we live. And that look, that may sound kind of uh, esoteric or, or, or irrelevant, but when you really start thinking about it, if the present is, is all that's really real, then each moment is really genuinely creating the next. There's an authentic process of time A leading to time B leading to time C. And all of a sudden, every choice and every decision and every everything that happens is making something real. And it's it's none of it's artificial, none of it's a snap that gets brought into you know into existence, you know, so in some kind of artificial way. Um, you know, if we're right about the beginnings of the universe, you know, if, if science is right about the Big Bang, you know, God kicks this thing off and then he lets it run in one direction, right? We don't, we don't see time loop. We don't see it go backwards. There must be something really fundamental to this, to this process of becoming, I think, to God's end game. Let's go, let's go back to the, the question about what can man do in the, the fall. Ask a Christian, did God will that the world be the way it is under, you know, as people say, under the curse, right? If the answer is yes, then it has to be good, right? God doesn't bring about evil, the, the condition that we find the world in with uh, thorns and pain and childbirth and all the things that he says, that must somehow be good. Maybe not good in the way that the original creation was, or it uh, depends on your view on that. But you can't say like the Gnostics did, that the creator God of this world is an incompetent like nincompoop. That's one of the answers that human beings have come up with to this problem. Christians mostly, thankfully, haven't gone this way, but for a lot of people in history, the creator is just not very good at what he did. And so we see a world that's bad. It's not good. And so I think as Christians, we have to be committed that even with our doctrine of the fall, even if we have a very strong view of that, God still has to be um, sovereign. He still has to have brought about the, the environment that we live in for, for good purposes. And so we have to hang on to that. And let me add one more thing again that I didn't put on our list to talk about, but there's a difference between a theodicy, uh, an actual explanation for the suffering, evil, and hiddenness that we see, and just a, a defense. So there are Christians that will get very offended by this very project, by the idea that that God needs, there needs to be an explanation. Yeah, why do you need to defend God? Absolutely. 
And they will say that's absolutely ridiculous and you're in no position to do this. There are defenses. Uh, they'll call it a defense, but really what it is, is it's a, it's a criticism of the person that's asking the question. What we want to do here, I think, is offer a theodicy, really give people a plausible alternative explanations for why the world is the way it is, why we experience what we experience. And if we can even go beyond that and say, look, this is an understanding of God that glorifies him, that we actually respect and appreciate what we can learn about God from his creation, right? I, I always think of that there's two books of revelation, you know, there's scripture and then there's nature, there's, there's general revelation. We shouldn't forget about general revelation. A lot of what we're going to talk about here comes from that. We look at the world around us through the tools that we have, reason and, and experimentation, and we combine that with what we can glean from uh, divine revelation in scripture and put them all together. And hopefully we should have answers. I mean, it, it seems very odd for God to give us the ability to question, the ability to see the problem, maybe even the moral capacity to be outraged by it, and then not offer us answers if we seek. One thing that I really appreciate when, you, when I look at the Bible, if you look up seeking, and it's just fundamental to, to what God asked us to do, um, constantly we're, we're, we're told to seek him and to, to investigate both the world around us and, and him to, to know him. And hopefully that's what we're doing here. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. All right. So let's get into some solutions on the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, the problem of hiddenness. Uh, where do we get started here? Yeah. Let's, let's tackle evil first because ironically um, as much as it's defined by a lot of people as the, as the worst problem, I think it maybe is the easiest one to start offering some explanations to. And I'd like to offer sort of a menu of potential answers. I'll follow your example and save the, my own for last. Yeah, there you go. Classic. <laughs> and, and we'll start with what I, I call universal divine causality. So the idea is every last event that has ever transpired has been the specific will of God that God has brought it about like an author for a book. He has scripted every last line, every last period, every last event that occurs, every horrible event was somehow leading to God's glory and, and to his good purposes. And uh, there's a lot of Christians that believe this. You can find defenses of this from people like R.C. Sproul and, and other reformed thinkers, but I'm just going to be real honest right up front and say, I, I find this to be terribly, terribly uh, unhelpful. When and, and all you need to do to experience it is to find one family that's suffering with the loss of a loved one, particularly if it's unexpected, particularly if it's, it's tragic. And they'll say, I don't understand. Why would God do this? We're desperate for an understanding and an explanation of why this would be. And um, I just don't think this offers an explanation. I think it's, it's avoiding one and it's, it's placing blame on God that we should be very careful not to place. You know, often they'll appeal to God's glory and, and to our humility in making their case, but we're not challenging God. We're challenging their conception of God. People need to remember that, that all of these potential, these uh, solutions or these systematic uh, theologies that we hold, we hold them. So what we're not, we're not questioning whether God is good. When we challenge whether the, your theodicy is good, we're challenging whether your theodicy is good, whether it's, it's appropriate and apt of a good and loving and powerful God. So I just, I find universal divine causality to just, to just not work. Yeah. I think especially on the, the question of, say, a child who gets hit by a car, 
you know, you're asking the question, well, it would be trivially easy for God to stop that car from hitting the child or, I don't know, delay the car by one second on a long red light before the car got there or a thousand other scenarios where this tragedy didn't happen because it was so unlikely. Basically, what you're left with on this universal divine causality or this, you know, what I would just call determinism is that God wanted that car to hit that child. Mm -hmm. So it, it, not only does it not offer an explanation as to why he didn't stop it, but it actually makes it worse because it says that he caused it to yeah. happen. And that it's, in the grand scheme of things, it was good. It was better for that child to be hit by that car than to not be hit by that car. That's what they have to argue. <laughs> Mind yeah. blown. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh. yeah. So yeah, let's look at these as a spectrum too. I, we can step a, a step closer to my view by saying, well, okay, well, maybe he doesn't specifically write out the entire script. Maybe God uh, before creation says, all right, what are the possible futures we could have? And he looks at all of the persons that he could make and the worlds that he could create, and he anticipates all of them perfectly. He looks at him and says, well, I think this one, number 52 billion, 567 million, whatever, and one, this is the one. This is yeah. the one I'm going to select. And he hits go. And from that moment on, everything happens exactly as he foresaw and as he forechose. This is called Molinism. And Molinists will cheer themselves for saying, look, we preserved free will, which we haven't talked about yet because I'm saving it. But... <laughs> But they're going to say, look, we preserve free will. Everyone still gets to choose and do exactly as they, as they, as they would freely do, which you don't have on this, that previous description, right? On the, where God is willing everything, all of, all of a sudden you've sort of, in theory, reinserted personal freedom and personal moral responsibility and personal accountability back into the, into the picture. But my criticism of this should be pretty apparent. All of your destiny is determined by which of these potential worlds God chooses. So this child that's hit by the car, there were all of these billions of other worlds where the child isn't hit by a car right. and lives a long and happy life. Maybe let's talk about something that might even be more important. This child in this in that first world is somehow lost for salvation, depending on your view of salvation. And in another world, God selects that child is saved. And all of a sudden, the most important things to us are all predetermined and to some degree, sorry, the worlds in which you would have been saved are somehow not as good. There's, there's more other, uh, there's, there are too many other bad things that happen. There were too many other people that weren't saved. So sorry about that. Your, uh, your destiny, your eternal destiny is, is settled. And I guess God has to shrug and say, look, I'm doing the best I can with what I was handed. People challenge this view for, for a lot of reasons. But one of them is where are all of these certainties about how everyone will act coming from? Yeah. Right. We, they don't even exist yet. And God knows exactly every move you would ever make in any situation he ever puts you in. Mm -hmm. Where's that coming from? This is really this, the middle position yep. of Arminianism, also called Arminianism, where God is able to see the future exhaustively, but doesn't determine it. And I think Calvinists and open theists on either side of that uh, valley in the middle are, are looking down, saying, uh, "We don't, <laughs> we don't see that." You know, like because the Calvinist is like, "Yeah, God just decides it, and you don't have free will to be saved or not saved. That's His choice." 
Uh, and the open theist is like, well, no, God doesn't determine it, and God can't access the future exhaustively. And uh, consequently, you do have free will, right? And where these people in the middle are saying, and Molinism is a subset of that, where it's like, all right, well, this is how he worked it all out. He used a universe simulator, uh, s- sort of like uh, if we could use the, the metaphor of the, the multiverse, that he sort of like generated all the universes that could be generated, and then he picked the one that uh, worked out the best. Well, you know, that in one sense allows him to control what kind of, without micromanaging, I guess, yeah. uh, all of the, what, morally significant decisions... There's still the explanation for evil from the bad, the, the evil choices that men make that God doesn't right. force upon them. So in, in on Molinism, you really do have free will, and you really Thank do you. experience free will. But that's only from a micro perspective. From the macro, yeah. he's already sure what everyone's going to do, and he has excluded all of the other possibilities from reality because yep. he's picked this one universe, right? So yeah, it's a way so, to have your cake and eat it too, right? And I, and I challenge whether that's authentic libertarian free will. And it, here's a thought experiment for that. Let's say you take a, a baby, and a, this is just a thought experiment, people. We're not doing this with a baby. But put them in a maze, right, with the bottle of milk at the end of the maze. Okay, I know because I'm God on Molinism that this baby only makes left-hand turns. So all, that's all the baby's going to ever do is make left-hand turns. Now, whether that baby gets the milk or not has nothing to do with any kind of moral criteria for that baby. It has nothing to do with whether that baby deserves that milk or not. All that determines whether that baby gets that milk is which of the mazes I put him in and now take everything that ever has mattered to anyone and make it come out based on which of the mazes God chose. I don't know about you, but that's morally outrageous to me. The idea that, that our struggles and our efforts really are not determining the outcome. But what's happened is God's put us in the conditions that are going to determine the outcome. I don't understand the point of actually creating that world, right? If you're going to simulate it, what's the point of actualizing it? I had the same problem with a deter- any kind of determinist view, which I think Molinism is determinism too. It's just a step back from yeah, God writing out each individual piece, right? God is collaborating to create the deterministic universe <laughs> rather than doing it on his own. And I would also make a one little slice into Arminianism and Molinism of separating them. And that is, if you, if you look at it on Molinism, God looks at all of the different worlds and chooses one on Arminianism. God hits the the go button and then he's presented Uh, with all of the future. Right. hmm. So um, in some sense, maybe that's better because it means God didn't choose the particular destiny that you'll have. And so there's some freedom that comes from that. But you still have the problem of if he knows all of this, how come he's not intervening more? You, I find Arminianism to be very difficult because he hits the button to say go. And he says, oh, my goodness, I'm going to have to flood the whole world and, and wipe it out. And oh, my goodness, I'm going to have all these people that that choose against me. And then he what goes through the motions of making that future come out the way that he's already seen it. I think it's very, very trouble. I, I don't think it works. Um, both with our Bibles, but even just with our moral instinct, that God would God would help make a different destiny occur where He can, and so that's where I want to come to. I'm going to call it policy theodicy or or a 
kind of an open theist view of, of a solution to the problem of evil. And, um, yeah, please and that's, do. So how, do, how does that help us in this situation? Okay, so let's, let's take a look at if God isn't determining everything that happens, God hasn't predetermined everything that happens by Molinism, or he doesn't necessarily know with 100% certainty like Arminianism what's going to happen, then what's the next step? Well, the next step is that he knows what he's going to do. He knows the kind of world that he'd like to create. He knows what his objectives are. And then he interjects this element of authentic freedom, libertarian freedom for individuals that he creates for persons. And they get an authentic vote. I keep using the word authentic because I, I, I just don't find the other views of what's called compatibilism where supposedly we get to choose, we are will, we do what we will and yet we can do no other. I just don't find that to be authentically free. Now God interjects into this environment that he creates this universe persons who are going to make decisions and they're going to be morally significant because they are owned by the person who makes them, not by someone else, not by God, um, but by that individual. And so now we start having the, appropriate environment for moral accountability, for moral development, for character to emerge, and potentially for soul making to happen. Let's actually now that we've got an image of that in our heads, let's say, how does that help us with our problem of evil? Well, fundamentally for that kind of a world to exist, people have to be able to choose A and B. They have to be able to choose that second tree, right? The one of knowledge of good and evil. If God constantly intervened in the world, every time someone made a poor moral decision or executed some kind of evil intent or act, it would be a very strange world that would certainly not be have real freedom in it. If ever, There's a famous quote that uh, I don't have in front of me from John Hick, but it's one of my favorites. And it goes something like this. Imagine a world where every time a bullet was fired, it dissolved in midair. Every time someone fell from a building, they gently fell to the earth and landed softly on their feet. If every time you tried to cutting a, a carrot and you got your finger instead, the knife somehow uh, bent around your finger, how would you possibly make decisions? How would you possibly interact in a world where every time something was about to go wrong, God intervenes to stop it? Every decision becomes morally neutral because if it's good, it happens. Mm. If it's evil, it gets turned to good. I mean, think about how we learn. <laughs> We learn from burning our, our hand on the oven. We learn from stubbing our toe. We learn from falling down. All of the conditions that we need for, for genuine moral development rely on this, this freedom, and unfortunately, this freedom to do evil. And so what open theists are going to say, and at least those that are building a theodicy, they're going to say that this is a, it's an opportunity cost of God uh, build, doing soul-making one of the costs is building a world in which those people can do evil, can choose against him. And um, as a thought experiment for this, imagine as a parent, you have a pill that you can give to your child, right? Uh -huh. And if, if they take it, they will always obey you and they will always love you perfectly. And due to this pill... How much is that pill? <laughs> right. <laughs> I got, I've got the patent in where so uh, if anybody wants shares, it. I'm already it, ready to <laughs> do the opposite of what you want me to do. Uh, uh, so, so Sean gives the pill to his, to his poor sons. And in 10 years, he is in terrible, terrible regret because he realizes that every moment that they're loving him is not authentically their choice. It's because of this dang pill that they yeah. gave them. Yeah. It would cheapen all their actions.
Absolutely. And so, and so now we've got a God in this, in this situation too. So if what we're really expecting is to have a relationship with God, I think this is, this is fundamental that we be able to choose him or not. And, um, well, there's all kinds of interesting questions about Christian, you know, end times and what, what's God's end game that comes out of that. But, um, for now we'll, we'll stick with evil. So there's a start at the problem of, of evil and we can talk more. Okay. The open theism view uh, in a sense, gets God off the hook for causing evil, but we still do have the issue of stopping evil. Right. He still allows it to happen. Yep, he sees the rape occurring live. He's aware of it. Why doesn't he stop it? Right. So there. Are, okay. So there is one other position that I need to interject here that that I don't hold, but that some people, particularly, I've talked to people that have experience real trauma, really terrible trauma they find helpful. And that's from a Christian scholar named Thomas Ord, Thomas J. Ord. And he actually says that due to God's nature of love, of, of self-giving love, he extends freedom just by his nature. Basically, God can't withdraw that freedom that he extends, even to the rapist and murderer. And that it's fundamental to God's nature to extend that kind of, that kind of freedom. And I think that's probably too strong to say that God can't intervene because I think we see him do that repeatedly and often in the Bible yeah. where, where he does do that. But there's an element of this that makes sense where if every time someone went to commit a rape, God intervened in the world to prevent it. And every time every bad event started to happen, God went to prevent it. What would that world, that'd be this weird bubble world in which it's, it's very difficult to imagine even being able to make decisions because you'd, we need the, the reliability and the continuity of time and the way that the laws of physics work to be able to even move through the world. The other part that I would add to this, this idea that God follows governing policies, is that imagine on this open theism view, whenever God acts, the future changes, right? What The, the potential futures that, that could be out yeah. there, they're all plausible. They're, there's there's different levels of, of certainty that one or the other will come to be. And when God acts that changes. But God can't know with certainty what those acts are going to bring about, each one. Perhaps he saves this poor person from, from this, this horrible uh, suffering, but maybe it brings about something worse down the road. We're not, we're, we don't know for certain. And again, there's this slippery slope where God, the more he intervenes, the more potentially that, that the world goes wrong. And all of a sudden, he'll end up being a respecter of persons. He's he's saving this one and saying, "Oh man, we're in such a big we're in such a big mess. I can't save this one over here. If only I had known back then, then maybe I could have I could have withheld my uh, my power uh, to save this person." I think actually our answers to the problem of suffering and hiddenness help us here. Okay. What we have is part of what we have is part of the answer by saying that God has to make sure that we have the right conditions. And, and be endowed with freedom, that's a start. And then some of the other answers, I think, will be entailments that come from that. Well, I'm going to have to cut it off here. That's all the time we have for this episode. Next time, Brandon Duke will give us his thoughts on how to make sense of natural suffering and God's hiddenness in part two of our theodicy discussion. Now, if you would like to follow up, I have a list of books with links including God and the Problem of Evil, Five Views, Divine Foreknowledge, Four Views, The Triumph of God Over Evil, Four Views on Divine Providence, and Divine Hiddenness, New Essays. 
that Duke thought might be good follow-ups for your own investigation into the subject, if you're interested. Those are also in the show notes for this episode. Additionally, if you would like to get in touch with Brandon Duke, you can find him online at truthborn.org. That's the word truth and the word born.org. And you can find out a little bit more about him and contact him there. You can also take a look at the videos he has put out for the Unitarian Christian Alliance on the YouTube channel for that organization, and I have a link in the show notes, as well as a Trinity debate that Brandon Duke did with Andrew Davis against a couple of people putting forward a popular Trinity theory. Also, I have a number of other episodes and posts about the problem of evil and suffering on Rest Studio that you may want to look into if you're curious to hear other podcasts that we've covered on the same material. Also, we got a new review. This is a five-star review from Cheryl, who submitted to Apple Podcasts, referencing episode 360, The Making of an Old Testament Professor. She writes, Thank you for your recent interviews with Bob Jones, David Krogh, and Russell Brown. You honor the life, work, and servanthood of those you engage in discussion on both fun and serious issues. Your sense of fairness and respect shine through. I really enjoyed the video clips on Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Thank you for your research and bringing your best to the work. Well, thank you so much, Cheryl, for writing in and for the five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. These interviews with Bob Jones, David Krogh, Russell Brown is part of a series of interviews I'm in the midst of right now, and uh, I can say I'm really enjoying it. You know, maybe every topic is not necessarily related to the previous one or the next one. Some of it is rather diverse, but uh, these are all Christianity-related issues that, you know, many of us are thinking about and asking questions about, especially the ones with Russell Brown. So many of you have already listened to that. Uh, But the one with Bob Jones is interesting, too. Old Testament professor, like, how do you end up being an Old Testament professor? And why the Old Testament? You know, he talks about that. David Krogh's Heart to Serve, another wonderful example of godliness in our own time. So check out those interviews if you haven't already. On our last episode, 361, Paralyzed by Doubt with Josh Anderson, Melvin wrote in saying, such an important issue for Christians going to college as 70% leave the faith during that time. The big tragedy is that those with the most enthusiasm almost always take a higher criticism course with a professor like Dr. Ehrman, or as he calls him, Dr. Errorman, Uh, that's cute, who take a perverse pleasure in destroying faith. They also like doing it through their unscholarly and poorly written books, which 90% plus of Christians will be unequipped to argue against. A bit of a racket. And he goes on from there. I will will defend Ehrman's writing ability. I think he is a masterful writer. I strongly disagree with his views on God and the resurrection and Scripture, Uh, But he's good at writing, I would say. But uh, I do agree with your overall point here, Melvin, in the beginning of your comment that uh, this is a major issue where so many Christians are going off to college. Uh, I remember my sister's experience. She went to what was ostensibly a Catholic school and thought she would take a class on Paul's epistles, thinking, you know, this would just be a class covering the content of the epistles and talking about the historical setting and... Uh, maybe some application, but in fact, the whole course was wholly designed to question and to disprove and to sow seeds of doubt about the Bible's veracity and Paul's authorship. And so, you know, this this is something that we do see over and over again at secular universities, and historically in America, the way Bible believing Christians have dealt with this problem 
is we have retreated and started our own colleges. Uh, but this, <laughs> and I guess that's one way to deal with it, but this, this leaves the uh, most prestigious and oldest institutions to have a field day with any kind of unsuspecting people who want to attend their classes. A lot of times they don't even hear that there is an alternative to some of these liberal theories that are really easy to disprove. Some of them, some of them are a little harder, uh, but they're all very modernist, very much descendants of the Enlightenment period and unconvincing to many of us who have had exposure to both sides today. So uh, thanks for making that point, Melvin. And, uh, you know, and, and Josh Anderson's point was that, well, as parents of our kids, we need to step it up. We need to expose them to alternate viewpoints, give them reasons, put them in a position where they're forced to think and work on that muscle in their head so that they develop the ability to discern between truth and error and to not freak out when opposing viewpoints get presented. Uh, he, and, and his comment goes on from there. Also, I wanted to mention that if you wanted to get in on this episode, 362, Why God Allows Suffering, Part 1 with Brandon Duke, uh, you can come on to restitudio.org and leave a comment there. Or, if you prefer, we have a pretty lively Facebook group for Restitudio. Uh, there's a page, but then there's also a group. And I highly recommend that if you want to engage with Duke. He's very active in that group. And so if you are a Facebook user, check that out. Well, that's it for today. Next time we'll hear part two and get into more on this same subject. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that online at restitutio.org. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.